Well, friends, you ever wonder what you would have seen or heard if you had been there that night? Would we have heard the choirs of angels or only the sound of barnyard animals shifting about? Would we have seen the star in the sky or never even noticed it? Would we have appreciated the cosmic implications of what the baby born in a manger meant or ignored it? Glad that we weren't that poor and irresponsible. I am sure that for any two people who were in Bethlehem that night, they could have seen and heard two entirely different scenarios, because that simply is how life is. God never presents himself in a revelation in a manner that we are forced to see it and to believe it. We're always left with an option. Looking at the same creation outside, one will say it's clear that an almighty God, an almighty wonderful God made all this. Another will say, well, you don't need God to explain the origin of all that. Beth and I drove to Florida a few weeks ago. We were delivering something to our daughter and her, her, her family down in Fort Lauderdale. And so we drove the, I don't know, 22, 23 hours from here over the course of two days all the way down to Fort Lauderdale. And it took us through what's commonly called the, the Bible Belt. And, and it's interesting to drive through that part of the country. And one of the billboards that we saw by the side of the road, it was not some little sign in the farmer's field, it was a gigantic billboard, said, there is evidence for God. And I turned to Beth and I said, is that ridiculous or what? There's evidence for God every place you look. When I turn and see the person sitting next to me in the car, she is evidence for God. When I see the creation, the mountains and the hills and the cows and the goats and the sheep, that is evidence for God. When I see the sun in the sky, that's evidence for God. When I see fields that produce food for us to eat to keep these bodies going, it's evidence for God. So it seemed kind of absurd to me to say, there really is evidence for God. How odd. I know where they're coming from. Two people can look at the same rescue, and one will say, it's a miracle. Another says, well, that was lucky. Back in 2007, a family was lost for three days in Paradise, California. Now, how ironic is that? They lost for three days. And another day in Paradise, as John went back there would say. They were lost for three days in Paradise while looking for a Christmas tree. They got turned around, and then two feet of snow fell. Thankfully, the help message that the father spelled out in the snow in large letters got seen by a helicopter pilot. And the helicopter pilot, his reflection was, we were just very, very lucky. Paramedics said it was nothing short of a miracle. Asked how he survived, the father replied, Jesus Christ. Same situation but two very different ways of analyzing it and looking at it. One picks up the Bible and says, it is the very word of God. Another says, it's good literature, but there's some mistakes in it. 
And there's a lot of outdated information and outdated ways of looking at life within. One looks at their life and says, God has blessed me so much. The borders have fallen for me in pleasant places. Another says, I went to school, I worked hard, and that's how I got to where I am today. Throughout the ministry of Jesus, there were always people who understood, who got it, and there were always people who didn't understand, who didn't get it. They missed it. Jesus says in John chapter 12, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for the purpose for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said, It has thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Some people heard it. Some people didn't. Same scenario. When Jesus did the feeding miracles, there were people who understood and came back to get to know this, this one from Nazareth better. But there are others that came back, the scripture records this, just because they wanted some more food for their tummies. When Jesus taught in parables, some understood the spiritual meaning behind the parables, while most did not. They just scratched their head in confusion. The people who understand and see are those, and always have been those, who are humble and broken. Isaiah says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. And Luke, he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from one high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our way in the way of peace. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. It's always and always has been the ones who are broken before God, the ones who are contrite, who will see the hand of God move, who will see his salvation. It comes through in a lot of our Beloved Christmas carols, like it came upon a midnight clear, says, O ye beneath life's crushing load, whose forms are bending low, who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow, look now for glad and golden hours come swiftly on the wing. O rest beside the weary road and hear the angels sing. No come, O come, Emmanuel, which we have just sung, one of the the refrains from that is, O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory over the grave. And O little town of Bethlehem, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. It has always been the humble. It's always been 
the broken. It's always been the contrite. It's always been the disenfranchised by the world who are drawn to Jesus. It is never the proud. It is never the self-righteous. It's never the self-sufficient who see their need for Jesus. And consequently, they will miss him every time. They will miss him every time. They can look at the same thing that you and I see, the same evidence. They have the same resources available to them. They won't see it. You will. He can be in the same room with them, and they would miss him because they're not broken and contrite. What kind of people embraced Jesus? The ones who embraced him 2,000 years ago were, thankfully, a very varied mixture. It wasn't one demographic, or else he wouldn't be a savior for all people. Humble shepherds, the lowest of the low, considered unclean, embraced him. Pagan astrologers, scientists of the day, who were hungry for the truth, who wanted to know the real truth, the magi from the east, they embraced him and worshipped him. An elderly man named Simeon. And you know how we we often, unfortunately, um, don't give respect to the elderly way we should, and we we disregard them and think, well, they don't know much, and they're, they're kind of past their prime, and we ignore them, we bypass them, give them only some token attention. An elderly man named Simeon, up in years, he embraced the Messiah. An old widow named Anna. Anna is such an interesting woman to, to ponder. The Bible says that she never left the temple, but spent all of her time praying and worshiping. She had been a widow after the first seven years of being married. She was widowed, and she spent all her time then in the temple doing nothing but praying and worshiping. I mean, think about that. I was thinking about that this week. I was thinking about all the bustling about that I do and all the activity that I do and all the stuff I have to accomplish and all my lists. I'm a list person. How hard it would be for me if I was going to stay in the church all day and do nothing but pray and worship. And that's what Anna did. She embraced the Messiah. Tax collectors, fishermen, centurions embraced the Messiah. And people who come to Jesus today are still a very varied lot. They come from every language and every country. They come from every walk of life, sophisticated and simple. They are rich and poor. They are educated and uneducated. They are influential. They are disenfranchised. They are talented, and they are not so talented. But there is one common denominator, and that is they must come broken. That means their pride is broken. There's not even a smidgen, I like that word, not even a hint of self-righteousness within them. And these are the very ones, thank the Lord, that Jesus accepts. Like Zacchaeus in the Gospels, a short little man who had gotten rich taking advantage of people. He was ready to make things right when he met the Savior, which meant giving back money to people that he had wrongly taken it from. 
like the thief on the cross, a very bad dude. And we all know that people that receive the death penalty, sometimes they, they die still ranting about the injustices done to them. In other words, still full of pride. But this man, the thief on the cross, his pride was broken. And he turned to Jesus and said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus accepted Peter, even after Peter denied knowing Jesus three times vehemently with cursing and swearing. Yet still, Jesus accepted Peter. That's a comfort for us who sometimes have denied the Lord, sometimes have blasphemed and said things that we should not say against him. Jesus looked on the woman who was caught in the act of adultery with tenderness and love. How I personally love that story. Because there's so many people that get themselves into situations and find themselves in situations, and people often, even within the church of Jesus, are ready to condemn them and say, that's it, no more patience, no more mercy. They're ready like like the people that day, to lift the stone and cast the first stone at her. And yet Jesus looked at that woman. She was guilty. She was guilty, caught. And he looked at her with tenderness and love. Everyone else thought they were justified to condemn her. Jesus says, let him who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And scripture records that one by one, starting with the oldest and the youngest, they all kind of you know, picked up their, their backpacks and they wandered away. Why? Because one by one they realized that they were no more righteous than the woman who had been caught red-handed in the very act of adultery. If we are broken, if we can easily admit our sinful condition, our true condition, Jesus will draw near to us. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Another scripture in Isaiah says, you dwell in a high and holy place, but also with him who is lowly and contrite in spirit. God dwells in the heavens. He dwells beyond time and space. And he also comes and makes his home with the one of us who is broken and contrite in spirit. The ones who come to Jesus are the ones for whom this world has lost its allure. Let that sink in for a second, because we live in such a, a rich culture where there's a lot to allure us and a lot that's available even to the poorest of us. There's just so much we have access to, so much to to feed our pleasures and our desires and to receive gratification from. But the ones who come to Jesus are the ones who have gotten to a point where they say, you know, this world, it's temporary. It does not satisfy. It's like a, it's like a shell game. It's empty. There's nothing really there. The kind of people who understand and see are the ones who do not love this present world. The Bible talks about using the things of the world 
but not being engrossed in them. Because we remember that this world, in its present form, is passing away. It's temporary. Um, Paul says this in Corinthians, and I'm reading this from the ESV version. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. So he's telling he's not saying there that we don't have to deal with the world or if you're married, leave your wife today. He's not saying that. He's saying don't be caught up with what this world offers as though it's permanent because none of it is. None of it is permanent. It will all pass away. This present form will pass away. So, so don't be attracted like a magnet to this present world. Don't be stuck to it like Velcro. Let go of it, knowing that for the time being, yes, you have to live in it, you have to deal with it, but it's passing away. It's not permanent. Now, I don't think this comes easy for any of us. And it probably, probably is, I mean, no doubt it is a process for, for us. Sometimes we have to try a whole lot of things in life and go through a lot of experiences and live a lot of years, before we conclude, it really is rather empty. It really is rather temporary, just like King Solomon did when he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, I would make a recommendation to, to some of you, perhaps, this afternoon, when you get a, a free moment. Read the short book of Ecclesiastes. It was written by King Solomon, who was known as one of the wisest people to ever live because he had, um, God said, when I make you king, tell me what you want. And instead of saying, make me rich, give me a long life, he said, give me wisdom. And so God gave him extraordinary wisdom along with it, wealth. And he set out because he was in a position to do it. He had the money. He had the people working for him. He had the property. He had the ability to perform, as it were, a scientific study in the sense that he could do anything he wanted. He could afford it. He had people working for him. He could make anything he wanted, and he could see, is this the essence of life? Does this bring lasting pleasure? And he tried everything, literally. And that's why I'm saying go home and read the story. Read the first 12 chapters of everything he tried, and yet everything he poured his money into, the forest, the fields, the flowers, the everything, he'd scratch his head and say, this too is vain. This too is meaningless. And yet, and the reason I bring it up this morning, the book doesn't end on that note. He learned from all those scientific experiments, he learned what is meaningful, and he sums up the book in the last two verses this way. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That was his summary. 
That was his conclusion that he has shared with all of us in the pages of Holy Writ. So Solomon learned that. He learned that this world, whatever it has to offer, however scintillating it is, however wonderful, however fun, however delicious it is, that it still is quite empty. It still is quite temporary. And not quite, it is temporary. You will never, ever take it with you. And hopefully at some point, as we learn this, we go through the process of maturing and learn it, and it does take a while, and we have to learn it for ourselves. Our parents, if they're godly, tried to teach us, but we still had to learn it because the world is alluring, has a lot of really wonderful things. And as we grow up and we can afford things and we get to a stage of life where we can get married, we can have children, we can own a house, we can have a nicer car, it's so easy to think, ah, this is life. And yet hopefully at some point we've had enough experience to say, this too is meaningless. The only thing that matters is God. Serving him, living for him, nothing else really matters. So we adopt, hopefully, that alien mentality, that stranger mentality, what I've often liked to, to call the living in a motel mentality, where you're just living out of a suitcase for a few days because you know it's not your home. You're not staying there. So you have the inconvenience of just living out of a suitcase because you're heading somewhere else. You have a different destination. And these are the ones that God treasures. These are the ones that God delights in. Hebrews chapter 11, the great faith chapter, um, you probably know the beginning of that book, describes all these great men and women who, who died in faith, who died looking forward with hope and faith to what God was going to do, and yet they all died never having received what they had hoped for. Sound familiar? Maybe it does. Hebrews 11, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged what? Just like the pastor just said, they acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. We don't belong here. We get to a point where this, 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 I don't belong here. This is not home. This doesn't feel like home. For people who speak this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. I mean, how can you not love the word of God when you read this? Don't you long for a homeland? A homeland that's different from this broken world with its perversion and its sickness, and its selfishness, ever inventing new ways of, of performing evil. They, the ones that speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. There's a yearning within their heart. They're looking forward to something that is lasting. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. Kind of like Lot's wife. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is, the scripture says, a heavenly one. Therefore, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Such, such profound words from the book of, of Hebrews. 
God is not ashamed of the ones who say, you know, this world is not my home. I don't belong here. And it set our sights on a heavenly city. God is not ashamed to be called our God. Isn't that, doesn't that touch your heart this morning? That when you have that attitude, God says, I'm not ashamed to be called your God. I mean, relationship between almighty God and a person like us. God's not ashamed to say, I am Michael's God. I am Barb's God. I am Elijah's God. It's no wonder that the Bible says more than once that we are considered like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Because we don't fit into this world system. I once, about 10 years ago, was sitting at McDonald's with a, a group of people. I just, I won't describe to you how I knew them, but it was like they were going to go to lunch, and they said, George, why don't you join us? It's lunchtime. And so I went with them for this McDonald's lunch, and one of them put me on the spot right off. He said, so you're a pastor? I said, yeah. You mean you preach sermons? I said, yeah, every Sunday I do. And he then said, Christians, that's what's wrong with the world. Enjoy your french fries with that. Enjoy your hamburger on that note. But the Bible says we will be considered the scum of the earth, the refuse, the garbage, the trash. And the world can wash its hands of us. But what does the Bible say? And these words are biblical not some poetic words I'm putting together. The Bible says one day we will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of the Father. It's hard for me to say that without feeling that little choked upness that comes to me so often. Imagine, friends, when you breathe your last breath here and suddenly you receive a rich welcome into the everlasting kingdom of God himself. How does that compare with the best this world has to offer? Even your wedding day. I mean, it pales. A rich welcome into the kingdom of the Father where he knows us by name and welcomes us home and says, well done. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. On December 17, 1903, Orville and Wilbur Wright, who when I was a kid, I read every biography I could find in my elementary school library about them, them and Thomas Alva Edison. They were my absolute favorites. Orville and Wilbur Wright, on December 17th, day after my birthday, a few years earlier though, they made their first flight of an airplane at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. On their fifth attempt, the plane, under the control of Orville Wright, embarked on a 12-second flight. Wilbur rushed to the local telegraph office and sent this following message back home to his family. We have flown for 12 seconds. We will be home for Christmas. Upon receiving the telegram, their sister Catherine went to the newspaper office, told the editor of her brother's new flying machine, 
and informed the editor that the Wright brothers would be home for Christmas, and she asked him if he wanted to set up an interview with them when they arrived. The editor told her, well, that's really nice, and I'll be sure to put something in the newspaper about the boys. And so on December 19th that year, the local paper placed the following headline on page six of the paper saying, Wright Brothers Home for Christmas. Completely missed the first manned flight. Page six, Wright Brothers Home for Christmas. The most important story of the year. The first manned flight. And the editor completely missed it. 2,000 years ago, most didn't have a clue what was happening in Bethlehem. For most, it was a night like any other night. It was a night to eat an evening meal and drink. It was a night to pick out your clothes for work tomorrow. It was a night to look for someone to stay warm with. It was a night to prepare to do business the next day. And so it is with most people today. It is the people who are broken, the people who don't have a hint of self-righteousness, who have long given up fixating on this present world, who have eyes to see and ears to hear, who see Jesus for who he is. These are the ones that, had they been alive, would have recognized him 2,000 years ago. They would have seen the star. They would have appreciated the cosmic proportions of what was happening. Had they been near Bethlehem, they would have joined the shepherds in worshiping. They would have kept coming back to hear him teach. They would have been devastated when he died on the cross, but then elated when he was alive three days later. They ultimately would have served him as Lord, not loving this present life. And I hope that that is who we are today. I hope, I trust that we long ago stopped thinking that we would be acceptable to God because of our goodness, because of our niceness, because we haven't done anything that bad. I hope long ago each of us stopped trying to earn God's favor, hoping that if we do enough good things, he'll overlook the bad. I hope we long ago realized that the best that this world has to offer, the very best that it ever offers, is relatively empty. It's short-lived. The best this world has to offer is not a political answer. The best this world has to offer is not a COVID-19 vaccine. All that is temporary. It's passing away. I hope we have long ago realized that the only life worth living is a life lived for God. Whenever I say God, I'm certainly implying his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, Emmanuel, God with us. That's what King Solomon learned through all of his experiments, all the funding of his mighty, wonderful projects, all of his study of botany and all the rest. He realized the only thing that really matters is living for God. Everything else is empty. It is temporary. I hope we've reached the point that we think so little of this life and so much of God that we're willing to 
sacrifice it all for him. If I can share what I think of when I say that and why I even say it. I sometimes sit at home having my devotions, and I, I, I recently switched the spot I do that. Um, I don't know what it is. I've, lately, I've been changing things up in my life, driving my wife crazy. She gets used to me doing everything a certain way, and then one day I do it completely different, and I'm stuck there. It really troubles her. But I've shifted from downstairs to upstairs for my devotions. And I sit there often in the morning and tell the Lord that all that he has blessed me with all that he has blessed with. I want to be willing to lay it all down. You know, whether it's a house, a car, grandchildren that we love so dearly, a spouse, a retirement account. And I reiterate this to the Lord because I don't want to be absorbed in any of these things that is so wonderful in itself. And I know how easy it is to be attracted like Velcro the things of the world. And so that's why I, I frequently reiterate the Lord. I kind of have this list. Lord, I want to lay this down, this down, this down, this down. I know how hard it is. And I know that one day, if you know, near the end of my life, you know, if I'm facing a, uh, you know, the sickness that will lead to my death or something, I can just imagine how hard it is to embrace death, how hard it is to be willing to leave behind this life, since it's all I've ever known. Which is why I like to reiterate with the Lord my list and say, Lord, I am willing to leave this and this and this and this. Because I want, when that moment comes, to be caught up with who he is and not say, but God, I don't want your kingdom because I love something in this present world. I'm just sharing that this morning because I'm telling you, I personally go through this all the time, privately at home, because I want to be so serious about not being stuck to the nice things, the blessings, blessings which came from God, that this present world does offer to me and to to you. So if you're like me, and you really are self-righteous is gone, you're broken before the Lord. You know that everything this world has is, is temporary and empty. And the only thing that truly matters is the Lord. Then we will be able to have a truly joyful Christmas. And maybe that's why I recommended that the, the head of your household, whoever it is in your family, is very conscious about doing something specific as you gather it's one person or 15 people later this week. Even if life circumstances leave us to celebrate all by ourselves, if we've come to this place where we know that it's Jesus only, it's all him, we can have a truly joyful Christmas. Even if this COVID-19 that I'm personally so tired of hearing about has forced us to downsize our gatherings and not travel as we'd like and do the things that we want. Even if disappointments mount, even if the older you are, the more you'll shake your head when I say this, even if there's a lot of holes in our hearts from loved ones who have already left us. If you're young, you won't relate with that. 
if you've lost a lot of really close loved ones, you've got holes in your heart. People that you miss a whole lot. This week, somebody asked me, this is not relevant, but I'll say it. Somebody asked me, George, if you could have dinner with, with three famous people, who would you choose? I said, well, the first would be Jesus. I said, well, that's what I'd say, too. I said, the second might surprise you, but it just popped in my head. I, probably Ronald Reagan. I really respected him as a, as a U.S. president. I said, third, I said, I just can't even think of a famous person who would be number three. I said, what I really think of is some loved ones that gone on to heaven. And I just wish I could have dinner with you know, my father or my mother or my brother or my aunt or this one or that one. That's who I just wish I could just have a meal with because there are holes in my heart, as there are with any of you who are older who have lost people. you got a hole, right? Nothing fills that. You long to see them again, but there's a hole. But if Jesus is central, even with those holes, you can have a truly joyful Christmas. And even if life is just confusing and unsettled, you don't know which end is up. If you know that he's up, <laughs> you can have a truly joyful Christmas. We are so blessed to be, picture, to be people who know the big picture. We have the scripture. We have history on our side. To, we don't just see through a glass dimly. We see what was happening 2,000 years ago, what it meant for our personal salvation. And we're blessed to understand who it was that was born in Bethlehem and why he came. And we're blessed to have been given the gift of faith by the Holy Spirit and to have it, have him in our hearts to worship, like the Magi of old and the shepherds and old Simeon and old Anna. All I can say as we close this morning is let's make sure that we use some of that eyesight that we have to see what it's really all about and how wonderful it is to also see people around us who don't know that. And to be conscious and deliberate to share the good news of salvation with them. Let's pray. Father, you have gripped us once again with the reality of what profound event was happening 2,000 years ago. It was an event that had been prophesied for generation upon generation. And it all came together with the birth of John the Baptist, the conception of Jesus in the womb of a young virgin named Mary, with the star in the sky, with the angels announcing to the shepherds, with the magi coming later from the east, to worship him, and then with all the events of the life of Jesus and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. Lord, we're so blessed to, to know all these events and to have the scripture, to have other historical records that confirm the scripture in order that we can know him too, in order that we can bow before him and worship him as Lord. Father, I pray that you might 
root out what still remains of self-righteousness within any of us. And that you would even, as painful as it is, cut off some of that Velcro that keeps us so attracted to a world that can glitter and gleam and seem so wonderful when it's so temporary and so, so small compared to the glory of your eternal kingdom, a kingdom where you are the order of the day, where we don't, won't even need the light of the sun because the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, will be the light, as the book of Revelation says. Father, help us not to love this present world, to use it as necessary, but to always be living out of a suitcase, looking forward to the kingdom to come. And Lord, as I, I said a few minutes ago, please give us eyes to see the people around us that don't know this truth, that have never been told, that have never understood it, that we might share it with them. They might have an opportunity to know the same peace that we know with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.